Welcome to For What It's Worth, a podcast from Raymond James designed to help you plan, invest, and live smarter. Hi, listeners, and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Paige Lenson. We're glad to have you with us. You can find more For What It's Worth on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. In this episode, we'll be talking about financial considerations for people with disabilities. These individuals and their families face some pretty specific wealth planning challenges. And while there are a number of strategies available to help, it's an area of the financial industry that's still evolving. To share his perspective on the topic, I'm joined by Will Lucius, Director of Special Needs Trusts at Raymond James Trust. Will, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Hey, Paige. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate the opportunity. Having a thoughtful and holistic plan is important for any investor and any family. But what stands out about the financial needs of individuals who have a mental or a physical disability? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a challenging question. Uh, You're correct. Holistic planning between estate planning and financial planning is incredibly important, regardless of somebody's situation in their life. As it relates to special needs planning and and people with disabilities, I think if you step back a little bit to see why it would be challenging is that the spectrum of special needs and disabilities is so wide uh, in our society. So we could be talking about somebody that's in a ventilator-dependent facility um, that has catastrophic care needs that requires 24-hour care. We could be talking about somebody that had an employment-based injury in a factory and threw their back out. Um, or you could be talking about a child uh, that's high functioning on the autism spectrum. So the, the issues are, are vast, but I guess from a financial planning standpoint is that the majority of working age Americans between 18 and 64 are employed, which means they get their income and their insurance through their employer. That's not the case if you have a disability or a special need that's precluding your ability to, to engage in, in gainful activity. And that's where the challenge comes from a financial planning standpoint is how are you going to plan for somebody's long-term care, whether it's age five or age 50 or age 60, if they don't have the benefit of that employment-based income and insurance, it requires a lot of, uh, of a forethought on how it is that you're going to adequately plan for their future. Can you talk a little bit about the added layer, even on top of that, of balancing benefits that an individual might be receiving from the government with the sort of individual planning that might be required to set yourself up financially for the future? Yeah, so oftentimes you're thinking about somebody's present self as much as you're thinking about their future self. So when you're looking at somebody's present self, you're trying to coordinate the various benefits that might be available. And there's a number of them. It can be at the state level, it could be at the federal level, it could be income, insurance, housing, heating assistance. I mean, the list goes on. Um, And a lot of those have very challenging rules and eligibility requirements that uh, the receipt of uh, any type of assets through an inheritance or gifting or anything like that, uh, it could could, could kind of throw a jam uh, into that process. So you're trying to balance uh, managing those benefits, the benefits eligibility, the coordination of benefits, plus seeing how you can leverage other mechanisms to be able to provide for that person's person's care and support as well. Can you talk to us about some of those types of benefits that are often being considered, and especially the ones that are means-tested and how that comes into play? Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, Going back to my original point with insurance and income being employer-sponsored, right? So if you don't have that opportunity to have employment-based insurance and income, 
then the two primary benefits that stand out that are means-tested to your point, which means that you have to be financially eligible, which is all means-tested means you have to be financially eligible in addition to have a disabling condition. The primary benefits are SSI, Supplemental Security Income, and then its cousin, Medicaid. So SSI provides monthly income and Medicaid provides insurance. And it would make sense that you would want to seek SSI and Medicaid because that is what's going to fill the gap from that inability to engage in gainful activity through employment. I'm sure it's different for every individual, but is the income that somebody would be getting from SSI, is that normally enough to cover their living expenses? Absolutely not. Unfortunately, even though a vast number of Americans uh, rely heavily on their monthly SSI payment, uh, this year, the federal maximum amount, if you're a single person and you're eligible for the full balance, is slightly more than $770 a month. That's it. Uh, So it is incredibly important to the extent somebody has other resources or if there are loved ones or people that are wanting to consider them on a long-term basis, they're going to want to leverage those sources because 700 and some dollars a month just isn't going to cut it. What's important though, is the Medicaid component that comes with SSI. In the majority of states, if you're eligible for SSI, you're automatically eligible for Medicaid. So even though the $700 might seem like a paltry amount, what's so important for people is that health insurance coverage. Because if you have a catastrophic injury or disability or special needs, and you are always in a doctor's office and, and you just have an outlay of healthcare expenses, it's going to be that health insurance component that is what people are really trying to seek and want to maintain. And to emphasize what you said earlier, with, with these benefits that we're talking about, even a, a well-meaning family member maybe somebody passes away or gives a gift to this individual who's receiving these benefits, just that well-meaning you know, gift can put that income in jeopardy. Absolutely. And I guess to go back for a second, just so we're aware for our listeners, is that in addition to SSI and Medicaid, we also have SSDI, Social Security Disability Income, and Medicare. So those are kind of cousins with each other as well. That also provides income and insurance, but they're not means tested. So when you're planning with somebody for special needs or disability, to your point, it's going to be important that you're aware of what those benefit programs entail and what the eligibility requirements are. Because to your point, if you're planning for somebody that is seeking or eligible for receiving means tested benefits, if they just have money that fall in their lap through gifting or through the receipts of an inheritance, that's going to erode the benefits that that was very difficult for them to achieve in in the first place. So it requires um, a significant amount of planning to make sure that that you don't interfere with somebody's ability to continue receiving those benefits that they rely on every day, especially the health insurance coverage. Can you explain a little more about the difference between those cousins, SSI, SSDI, Medicaid, Medicare? Can somebody be receiving all four? Is it two or the other two? No, no. I call them cousins because you normally see them paired with each other, SSI with Medicaid and SSDI with Medicare. Uh, I don't know why they decided to make them sound so similar. Uh, But yes, you can be a dual eligible, which means that you can receive a mix of all of those. Uh, But to break it down a little bit, if you're receiving SSDI and Medicare, That means that for the most part, you have likely paid into the system through wage withholdings. So by virtue of you paying into the system, you're entitled to those benefits. That's why SSDI ends in insurance rather than income like SSI. So SSDI is social security disability insurance. You've paid into it. You've been injured. Now you're going to get it back. And Medicare, assuming that you've been disabled for two years, you're going to get that through your wage withholdings. There's some other rules 
if you're dependent on somebody receiving those benefits as well. But for SSI and Medicaid, those are designed for people that never had the ability to engage in any type of work activity where you would have those wage withholdings. So if I have a child who was born with a catastrophic injury and will never be gainfully employed in their life, they won't have had the opportunity to pay into the system to receive SSDI and Medicare, which is why you want to leverage SSI and Medicaid. But yes, you can receive a mix of those. Can you tell us about some of the strategies that are available to help provide some more you know, financial opportunity for an individual who's in this situation while not jeopardizing these benefits that you've been talking about? Absolutely. Especially in the context of estate planning, uh, special needs trust probably rises to the top of the list uh, in terms of uh, sound planning that you can be doing or what you should be considering. Uh, there's a variety of reasons why you would want to have a trust. There's many types of trusts that don't always tie into preserving somebody's ability to continue to receive benefits and be eligible for benefits. But with the special needs trust, that's exactly what it's designed for. It is a vehicle to allow somebody to be able to benefit from trust assets in a way that's not going to jeopardize their eligibility for benefits. So for SSI, for example, Social Security is going to look at the amount of money you have in the bank. And if you're under a certain threshold, you're eligible. With a special needs trust, the beauty of that is somebody can establish a special needs trust through your estate plan for that person receiving SSI. And by virtue of it being in a properly created special needs trust, it won't interfere with their eligibility. It's not, that trust is not considered an asset for eligibility purposes for SSI and for Medicaid. Who can open a special needs trusts? trust? Yes. Yeah, so there's, there's really several types of special needs trusts, but for our purposes today, there's two distinct types, and it depends on the source of funds used to create the trust. So one, the individual themselves can create their own special needs trust, and that's called a first-party special needs trust because it's money coming from the person who's disabled who's going to be the beneficiary of that trust. So if I'm in a car accident and I sue somebody, I'm catastrophically injured and I receive a jury award for $5 million, if I decide or if counsel decides that it's appropriate for me to have a special needs trust, I can divert that money into a special needs trust for my benefit. Now, the catch to that is that at my death, if Medicaid, the health insurance benefit that we were talking about, if they were paying for me while I was alive for my health insurance coverage, then anything in that trust that is remaining at my death will first go to the state to repay the state whatever Medicaid benefits were paid on my behalf. So that's a first party special needs trust. However, on the estate planning side, you have a third party special needs trust. And with a third party special needs trust, that is money going into the trust that's coming from another source other than the beneficiary with the special needs or disabilities. So think of like a gift or an inheritance. So if I have a grandchild that I want to consider under my estate plan I, that has uh, autism, for example, and is receiving SSI and Medicaid, I can create a special needs trust under my estate plan for my granddaughter. It will not blow up her benefits and she'll still have the, the, the ability to enjoy whatever assets I've placed in that special needs trust for her. And the distinction between those two is with a third party special needs trust, there is no Medicaid payback requirement. What happens in that first party trust example that you gave if the amount that you is, that's needed to be repaid from what's left over in the trust when you pass, what if that amount is greater than what's left in the trust itself? Yeah. So then kind of, unfortunately, the state is left holding the bat. It's kind of like, it's kind of like dying with uh, unsecured credit card debt. If, you, if there's no money in the estate available, then Citibank is, is out of luck. Um, Medicaid works much the same way. They can only recover whatever is available 
uh, in the trust that's remaining. It's, it's also important to note, though, that you only have to reimburse Medicaid at the Medicaid reimbursement rate. So whatever Medicaid paid the health insurance provider, that's all you're obligated uh, to repay. So oftentimes, you'll find that the Medicaid lien um, might not be as significant as what you're thinking, but, but there are times where it will, it will take the entire balance. But whatever is left outside of what's available in the trust, then nobody else is responsible for that other than uh, the trust itself. Who is eligible to be the beneficiary of a special needs trust? Is it, is it specifically physical disabilities, mental disabilities? Does it cover a broader spectrum? Yeah, so uh, a first party special needs trust is an advent of federal law. So there is actually a statute, 42 U.S.C. 1396 PD4A. I know it sounds a lot, uh, a lot there, but some people will refer to it as a D4A trust because they're referring to the federal statute that authorizes that. So if you look at that statute, uh, one, of the th- one of the requirements, and there's not many, but one of the requirements is the person has to be considered disabled under Social Security's definition of disability. And again, that definition is broad, but it's generally linked to somebody's inability to engage in substantial gainful activity, which simply means they're not able to work uh, enough to be able to, um, to, to leverage that employment-based income. So it, it, there's no limitation on the type of disability, just that they are considered disabled under Social Security's disability, uh, definition. However, with a third-party special needs trust, that's largely just the creature of estate planning, and it varies by state law. So you don't have the same restrictions and the same caveats and requirements under federal law with a third-party special needs trust as you do with the first-party special needs trust. And, then, and, there's, and there's, public, sorry, there's public policy behind that as well, because again, with a third-party special needs trust, that's money coming from a third party that is wanting to gift or consider somebody in that context. So they don't want to create too many restrictions there. Otherwise, you're convincing somebody not to, not to want to, to help. I know that the trustee holds a really important role for any kind of trust, whether it's a special needs trust or another form. But can you talk about that and, and the selection consideration? What should a family or an individual consider when they're looking to fill the role of a trustee? Yeah. And so with the trustee, Regardless of the type of trust, a trustee is a fiduciary, which carries a lot of weight under the law. You have the duty of loyalty and uh, safekeeping and asset management. And there's, there's a plethora of duties that come with serving as trustee of any type of trust. But in particular, with a special needs trust, I, I still think that there are even some, some people would argue against this. But I think that there's even a heightened duty beyond what comes with serving as a fiduciary because you're responsible for somebody that really is going to rely on that trust for every facet of their life. You're essentially providing a concierge service to that person because they are going to be, for the most part, entirely dependent on that trust. And and again, you need to think about their future self. So the burden on the trustee is to make sure that you're thinking about somebody 10, 15, 20 years down the road as much as you are today, because that trust might represent the sum total of what they're going to have available to them throughout their life. Uh, So when you're going to select a trustee, you need to be mindful that you're picking somebody that one has the time to be able to do it, um, but also understands what's required in terms of maximizing and maintaining those benefits that we were talking about. It is a maze of walking federal and state law when it comes to SSI and Medicaid, for example. And if you have a trustee, even a well-meaning trustee, if they're not aware of those rules, then having a trust alone is not enough because any type of improper distribution from the trust can interfere with their benefits. So you really need to have a trustee that has a good working knowledge of the various benefits that that beneficiary might re- be receiving in addition to the time that's going to be required to be able to assist that beneficiary on a daily basis. We've talked about special needs trusts. 
Can you tell us about ABLE accounts, what they are and how they might differ in some ways from the characteristics of trusts that we've talked about? Yeah, ABLE accounts are awesome. They've uh, not been around uh, a super long time uh, relative to special needs trusts. The D4A statute I was telling you about uh, was signed into law in 1993. Um, So, you know, that's been around a lot longer than ABLE accounts. Uh, But ABLE stands for Achieving a Better Life Experience. Uh, It is found under the IRS, the uh, Internal Revenue Code under 529A, which is really close to 529, like the college plans that most people think about. Um, But with an ABLE account, it is kind of a, a, I don't want to say garden variety retail account, but it's an account that will be able to hold assets for somebody that has a disability or special needs. But there are certain limitations with an ABLE account that don't exist with a special needs trust. So for example, with an ABLE account, you can't contribute any more than $15,000 a year currently into an ABLE account, and that's from all sources. So the most you'll ever be able to have in an ABLE account in terms of funding is $15,000 a year. It can go up to whatever the 529 limit is for a state, but you can only add $15,000 a year at a time. Also with an ABLE account, if the beneficiary dies, there's a Medicaid component to it, similar to first-party special needs trust. So anything remaining in the account will be subject to that Medicaid lien. But otherwise, it's a great planning tool because you're able to use an ABLE account for what's called qualified disability expenses, which is defined very broadly. So anything that can benefit that, that individual, the account holder, anything related to their special needs or disabilities are all permissible distributions. And it's a good way of achieving autonomy for a beneficiary who wants to engage in limited employment, but they're constantly worried about those eligibility rules. So for SSI, if you have to keep your... Uh, you know, your checking account under 2000 at the end of every month, you might not want to go work at the local Publix, you know, five hours a week because you're worried that that income uh, is going to push you over those limits. So you can divert that into an ABLE account and anything in an ABLE account, much like a special needs trust, uh, won't count against you for eligibility purposes up until the ABLE account gets to $100,000. Um, however, if you're wanting to consider somebody and make, gifting, uh, make gifts for them, for example, you need to be careful because if you gift money into an ABLE account, there is that Medicaid component, whereas for a third-party special needs trust that we discussed, there is no Medicaid component. So it might be more suited that you look at that rather than an ABLE account from a gifting standpoint. Uh, but regardless, ABLE accounts are great. They're relatively new. Um, but I do counsel people that it's not an either-or proposition between an ABLE account or a trust. It's like adding tools to a toolbox. Normally, when you go buy a new tool and you put it in your toolbox, you're not taking another tool out. Instead, you're adding, uh, you're adding uh, what it is that you'll be able to leverage in the future. So, so don't think of it as either-or. It's an additional planning option that's great, but there are limitations that are, that are unique to an ABLE account that don't exist with special needs trusts. If a family were interested in in accessing these options, is the process for learning more about special needs trust, potentially establishing a trust, similar to the process for ABLE accounts? No, absolutely not, unfortunately. So with an ABLE account, they're still pretty limited. It varies, it's going to vary from state to state. Uh, some states have residency requirements, so you can only open an ABLE account in a particular state if you're a resident of that state. Some states do not have a residency requirement. But in just about all states, if you want to open an ABLE account, you have to go through the state portal, online portal, to be able to open an account. It's not that you can go down to your local advisor's office and be able to open it or go into the local bank and open it. It's not just a garden variety checking account that's easy. It is easy to open, but but you can only go through 
the portal to be able to access it. Whereas in special needs trust, you'll need to rely on counsel to draft it because it is uh, it is a trust document, and you'll want to you want to work with your attorney and, and your financial planner to some extent if you're going to go down that path. But but there is some nuance on how you would create a special needs trust relative to opening an able account. What takeaway do you have for families that are balancing all of this information, all of these different sources of benefits, you know, there's the financial planning strategies involved. How should they be thinking about fitting this big puzzle together? First is take a breath and don't be overwhelmed because it can be overwhelming for a lot of people, right? I mean, you're, you're dealing with benefits that are not front of mind for people. It seems to be foreign, especially if you have a minor child that's getting close to being 18, as a parent, you've been taking care of that child and now here they're hitting adulthood and you want to make sure that they're best positioned uh, for their future. But seek advice. Get advice from the attorney that you trust. Get advice from the advisor that you speak to on a regular basis. Get advice from support groups for people that are in similar situations as yourself or as your loved one. And you'll find quickly that if you get sound advice, that there are a lot of options available and there are a lot of great professionals that can help steer you through that process. You're not alone and and you can leverage others to be able to help you along the way. But the most important thing is that you do something. Uh, Don't don't be the clients that walk in and say that I'm going to ignore my child intentionally because you think that there's a lack of options because that's not the case. The law has developed immensely over the last 20, 30 years and, and you really do want to avail yourself of the available options. And to do that, you should seek trusted guidance by the people that, that um, you, you rely on on other facets of your life. Well, one last question for you. We're so appreciative for your perspective. You've mentioned that this area of financial planning has changed a lot over the last 20, 30 years. Moving forward, what future changes do you hope to see? I hope to see that we continue on the trend of maximizing autonomy for the individual that we're speaking about today. Um, again, not having them ignored, um, not having them segregated, not thinking that there's not planning options, but really maximizing autonomy to where they can be an integral part of, 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 of our society, notwithstanding whatever impediments that they might have along the way. And we're, we're already seeing that. We're seeing that with the ABLE account. Again, it's achieving a better life experience. Uh, the Special Needs Fairness Act has now allowed uh, individuals to create their own first-party special needs trust. It used to be under federal law, that D4A statute I was telling you about. The individual was not among the class of people that could create their own trust. Uh, so the fact that the law has changed there is one of the last pieces of legislation in the Obama administration. So the fact that we're continuing on this path of maximizing autonomy, I hope that we continue on that path because that's the direction that we should be going. Will Lucius, Director of Special Needs Trusts at Raymond James Trust. Will, thank you so much again for speaking with me today. Thanks so much, Paige. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. You can find more for what it's worth on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, So be sure to subscribe to catch all our latest episodes. For what it's worth, I'll see you next time. All opinions and information, including any price references or market forecasts, correspond to the recording date listed in this episode's description. Any performance figures noted do not include fees or charges, which would reduce an investor's returns. The information contained in this podcast is not research nor does it constitute the provision of any investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or recommendations to the listener. Raymond James and its financial advisors do not provide tax or legal advice, and you should discuss any tax or legal matters with the appropriate professional. Past performance is not an indication of future results. 
there is no assurance any investment strategy will be successful. Investing involves risk, and investors may incur a profit or a loss. Investment products are not deposits, not FDIC-NCUA insured, not insured by any government agency, not bank guaranteed, subject to risk and may lose value. Copyright 2020 Raymond James & Associates Inc. Member New York Stock Exchange, SIPC. Copyright 2020 Raymond James Financial Services Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC.